Well, family, 2021 is here, which means 2020 is over. And I don't need to recount the year that we've just had. We all remember it. We just lived it. But bear with me. Indulge me. I'm a preacher. The year started with the Australian bushfires. You remember those? Seems like forever ago, but they consumed 47 million acres of wildlife habitat, displacing thousands of animals and people. Then we all know the COVID-19 global pandemic hit. And to date, it has infected worldwide more than 94 million people and resulting in at least 2 million deaths. Just think about that. 2 million deaths. Disrupting normalcy as we know it. Then with all the lockdowns and business shutdowns, the stock market crashed and the Dow Jones suffered its worst single day point drop ever. And in the midst of all that, there were the horrific killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. That's just naming a few. It sparked unrest, riots, and that sinking feeling that we aren't as far along as we thought we should be. In 2020, we saw the arrival of murder hornets. Have you seen how huge these things are? They can wipe out entire bee colonies within hours. There was the massive explosion at a Beirut port sparked by the accidental detonation of 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds awful. It killed at least 190 people, injuring thousands of others. There were still more deadly wildfires on the West Coast, burning more acres, displacing hundreds of thousands of people. We all just went through the contentious presidential election that has exhausted millions and put doubts in many over the future of democracy in these United States of America. And that's not even a comprehensive list of everything that happened in 2020. There's whole websites that just detail the horrific nature of 2020. And now as we begin 2021, I have a question for you. What makes you think 2020 will be any better? Is it just the assumption that, well, nothing could top 2020? Is it just willful hope? Like, I'm just hoping it's better. Consider this reality. We're 17 days into 2021, and we've seen the U.S. Capitol building seized by what can only be called a seditious insurrection of domestic terrorists as the joint sessions of Congress tried to solidify the election results. Our president has been um, impeached for a second time in his term. Personally, my family got COVID and we were under quarantine for the first week of 2021. We had to cancel a couple gatherings. And so I ask you again, what makes us think that 2021 will be any better? Over at the New York Times, uh, Wahajat Ali writes this, Like many, I would love an instant catharsis, a release from this enduring tragedy. But despite all the talk about how bad this year has been, life will not return to normal at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. I personally experienced that. Chaos and crises don't follow a calendar. Most of the underlying problems and challenges that made 2020 feel like a horror story will roll along with us into the new year. So what do we do as we go into 2021? 
On one hand, so much of what happens is simply outside of our control. (laughs) Made my case right there. (laughs) Right? And yet on the other hand, as Christians, we're called to be thoughtful and intentional with the everyday decisions of our life. So what that does is it creates a tension. Think about it. On one hand, most things are outside of our control. And yet on the other hand, we make real decisions every single day that have real outcomes and impact our lives. That same tension that we face as we begin 2020, it's the same tension that the Apostle Peter addresses in his first letter. It's written to a group of Christians living at a time of widespread persecution and suffering. We don't have time to go into all the background of, of, of ancient Rome in AD 60, but I'll tell you, they would, they would gladly take 2020 over AD 60. So we went to a group of Christians living at a time of widespread persecution and suffering. And Peter does not offer them empty promises. He doesn't give them objectless hope. Or he doesn't give them do-it-yourself grit. What he does is he offers them gospel-saturated resolutions. So what is a gospel-saturated resolution? Well, in general, a resolution is a firm decision to do or not do something, right? We make these a lot of times as we go into a new year. And so you sit down and you think about making these commitments, right? You have this vision for what you want your life to be. And then you, uh, you arm that, that, that vision with commitments of things you're going to do differently. It's a mindset that creates a framework for making a string of decisions in a row to reach a desired outcome. That's what a resolution is. So what's a gospel-saturated resolution? Well, it's a commitment to not make your own vision. We don't come up with our own vision. In fact, for the believer, we adopt Christ's vision for our life. And so a gospel-saturated resolution is a commitment to see Christ's vision for your life come to fruition. It's a mindset that is informed by the gospel. And as Peter winds down his letter before he ends and signs it, he gives his readers three gospel-saturated resolutions in the text we just read. And I believe if we will commit to these three resolutions, no matter what happens in 2021, it will be a better year. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4 together. He begins in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter begins by reminding his readers that Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Well, first it means that Jesus, though he is fully God, completely and totally God, the fullness of deity dwells in him. He is also fully human. John tells us in his gospel, remember when we preached through John, that Jesus is the word who is God and who became flesh and dwelt among us. Friends, Jesus is a real human being. He lived an earthly physical life and during his ministry, his life was marked by trial, temptation, and unjust suffering. Let me just give you a quick hit list of the sufferings of Christ. As he begins his ministry, after 40 days of fasting, Jesus was weakened, hungry, and tired, and he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself. 
He didn't send one of his minions. He came himself. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was slandered and misunderstood. People lied about him, despised him, and rejected him. Most of his family thought he was crazy. His best friends abandoned him in his time of need. He was arrested on false charges, unjustly tried, physically beaten to the point where he was nearly unrecognizable. He was stripped naked to be shamed. He was crucified on a Roman cross as an enemy of the state, though the government found him to be innocent. Though he was innocent and without sin, the Bible says that he became sin. Think about that. He was innocent without sin, but he took on all of our sin, bearing our sins in his body, as 1 Peter 2 tells us. He suffered the curse of sin, though he never participated in it. And on the cross, he was forsaken and guilt-laden as the lamb slain to take away our sin. Writing 700 years before that moment, the prophet Isaiah in 53 says this. He, speaking about Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed. That's why Peter says, Christ suffered in the flesh. Then he says, therefore, because of this reality, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. If you want a good one-word English translation from the Greek for that phrase, way of thinking, it's this word, resolve. So what Peter is effectively saying is this, arm yourselves with the resolve of Christ. Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter says this, Christians must be armed with the same disposition and resolve that allowed Jesus to set his face resolutely on the cross. See friends, Jesus didn't just accidentally live the perfect life and he didn't just accidentally go to the cross to die for your sins and mines and mine and Luke uh, Luke writes this that Jesus set his face on Jerusalem to head toward the cross which means he made an intentional resolute determined decision to die for you and me in our place for our sins It didn't just happen. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. He made an intentional, thoughtful, resolved decision. Then Peter goes on to explain the purpose for taking up this resolve of Christ. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of this time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. So what Peter is doing, he's telling us that mindset, this resolve, this determination to live the rest of our lives for the will of God, that's the purpose. What Peter is saying is everybody is going to live for something. You live for something. Everyone you've ever met, if you turn to your left or turn to your right, that person you see is living for something. Every single person does. You are going to give your time, your resources, and your energy to something 
It's, it's, it's how we're hardwired. What Peter is saying then is set your heart and your mind to live for the will of God instead of human passions. Now let's look at that phrase. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that suffering or living a life of suffering uh, eliminates sin or that if you adopt this mindset that you will 100% stop sinning. This verse isn't teaching sinless perfection. That's not possible in this life. Friends, until Christ returns, you and I will struggle with sin. What it does mean, though, is that Christians who choose obedience, who make that firm decision, despite hard or unjust suffering, no matter the trials you are going through, what it means is that if you are choosing obedience, you've made a decision to strive for holiness, despite whatever else is happening around you. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans 6, verse 11. So you must also consider. You see, that's another verb of the mind. This way of thinking, considering. It's making a decision. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here's this principle we have here. For the Christian, because the power of Christ has broken the power of sin in your life, because you are no longer a slave to sin, though sin no longer reigns over you, sin does remain. Now we've said this before and it's worth repeating. In Christ, if you right now say, Pastor, I am in Christ, I put my faith in him. This is true of you right now. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. If you're taking notes, write that down. It's an important phrase. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. Also, if you're in Christ, this is true of you. You are right now being saved from the power of sin. It's a progressive thing. This is the life of sanctification. If you want to know more about it, sign up for our class. We're going to spend two weeks talking about it. If you are in Christ, you are being saved from the power of sin progressively over time. That's why the first minute you're a Christian, you have less power over sin than when you've been living in Christ for a decade. Over time, Christ frees you from that power of sin. And then this will be true of every single person in Christ. One day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Believer, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are no longer under condemnation. And because of Christ's power in you, you are being saved from the power of sin. And one day when Christ returns, you will be saved from the very presence of sin. So until our salvation is totally and fully complete, though sin no longer reigns over you as your master, it will remain with us. And so when we put all of that together, here is what Peter is saying. Christian, remember, Christ suffered for you on the cross. He made a determined decision. He had a determined heart and a resolved mind to go to the cross despite the suffering it involved. And that becomes an example for us. And because we're united to Christ, we too can have that same mindset, that same resolve. And when we're armed with that kind of resolve, we can walk in holiness. You see, 
if we just resign ourselves to say, well, I, I can't have power and mastery over that sin. I can't do it. What you're saying is Christ's power in you is inadequate. What you're saying is sin still reigns over you as your master. But Christ has freed you from that. He has set you free in Christ Jesus. So Christian, look at me. Walk in holiness. You are free to walk in holiness. Even if we experience hard or unjust suffering, that is not an excuse for sin. In fact, it is a, 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 a means by which God is going to form and shape you more and more like Jesus. This isn't the first time Peter has said something like this in his letter. If you've read 1 Peter 2, you know these verses. 1 Peter 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. And what? Live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So again, if you're taking notes, here's the first gospel-saturated resolution that I think will change your life. Resolved to be armed with the mindset of Christ to pursue the will of God. What is the will of God for you? We often ask this question. I get this question more, almost more than any other question. Pastor, what is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? Any of you? Okay. Here it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. You ready? I'm going to un unlock the big mystery. This is the will of God. You ready? Your sanctification. Want to know what God's will for your life is? That you would grow in everyday holiness. Paul states it plainly. I didn't make up those words. Those are the words of God. God's will for your life as a Christian is to pursue holiness. A life of sanctification. And that doesn't happen accidentally. None of us accidentally stumble into holiness. It doesn't work that way. We stumble into sin it takes a resolved mindset, a determined heart, a resolved mind to walk and strive towards holiness. Sanctification is a great biblical word. Add it to your vocabulary. It simply means this. The process over a lifetime where you put sin to death and cultivate, grow, nurture righteousness. I'll say that again. It's just a process over a lifetime where you put sin to death and you cultivate a life of righteousness. See, in justification, there's another good biblical word, add to your vocabulary. In justification, God declares you righteous as a judge does when he puts down the gavel on the basis of Christ's righteousness. On your judgment day, Christ says, he is with me. And so on that basis, God says, since you're in Christ, you've lived a perfect life. You are not guilty. That's justification. He declares us righteous. Then, because God is so loving, he actually works to make us righteous. This is what the life of sanctification 
looks like. In sanctification, God continues this work of redemption. He changes us from the inside out so that we actually become righteous. Friend, every Christian has a biography in two volumes. Volume one of your life covers all of life before that day when you were born again. It's the life you lived in darkness before Jesus turned on the lights. It's the life you lived before you acknowledged your sin and confessed it to God and turned away in repentance and put your faith in Jesus. That's volume one. Volume two begins that day when God turns on the lights. When God makes you alive, joins you to Jesus. And volume two covers every day after that. The second volume tells the story of how you began to live as adopted sons and daughters of God. Surely it has ups and downs. There are times when we don't fully live out that call in our life to walk in holiness. It covers the ups and downs as we strive to live out our faith in a grateful obedience to Christ. Some of you in this room have a long volume one. Came to faith later in life. Some of you have a short volume one. You came to Christ in in childhood. But no matter the difference in length, every Christian biography comes in two volumes. Peter is speaking to the mindset necessary to write a volume two that values God above all else. You have to make a firm, resolute decision. This passage reminds me of the marathon mindset. You ever heard this phrase before, the marathon mindset? Any of you run a marathon? We have no marathoners in the house. Okay, half marathoners. All right, I knew we had one. All right, there we go. Talk to any marathon runner and they will tell you that the marathon is as much a mental exercise as it is physical. There's a man by the name of Ian Torrance. He's an ultra marathoner. Did you know those exist? If, if, if a marathon weren't enough, there, there, there's this like elite group of runners, of ultra marathoners. Listen to this. These races can be 30, 60, 80, or even 100 miles long. Not over multiple days, like one race, okay? He's finished more than 200 ultra marathons, and he's won 53 of them. One out of every four times, he wins the ultra marathon. Here's what he said about the marathon mindset. Success can be found at any distance and at any level if you have the right mindset. Do you hear that nugget of truth that he's talking about? At the end of the day, the right mindset is the determinative factor in completing a marathon. Most people don't even get up off the couch and try because of the mental block that says, I can't run 26.2 miles. I can't do it. So before you've even tried, you've lost, right? You have to, it has to be one in the decision-making process. Peter is saying, in, in the same way, the marathon of life, the right mindset is the determinant factor in completing this life of sanctification. Many of us live defeated Christian lives. We just opt for the path of least resistance because why? 
we've never made a determined, resolute decision to live for the will of God. Friends, Jesus has broken the power of sin in your life and in my life, and he gives us himself as an example to follow. And that is an incredible weapon against sin. John Calvin wrote, if we are united to Christ, he says this, we are really and effectually supplied with invincible weapons to subdue the flesh. So many times we, when, when I have conversations or even in my own struggles, I think I just don't have what it takes. I don't have the right tools. I don't have the power to overcome sin. But it's not true. If you're in Christ right now, you have invincible weapons to subdue the flesh. It's amazing. In the moment of sin, right before we do it, you are in the worst possible decision, a place to make a decision. Have you, have you seen that to be true? If you, if you wait, if you're kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to engage in this sin or not, I'll make a call when I get there, right? If that happens, it's over. You're, you've actually already made the decision to engage. If you're going to experience victory over sin, you have to make the decision ahead of time. There has to be a firm, resolute decision to what? Be armed with the mindset of Christ to pursue the will of God. That's resolution number one. Will you adopt this resolution in 2021? To be armed with the mindset of Christ to pursue the will of God. Now let's go to verse three and see Peter's second resolution. Number, verse three. For the time is past for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. If the first two verses in chapter 4 give us a general guide for life, to be armed with this mindset of Christ to pursue the will of God rather than human passions, verse 3 gives us a list of what some of these human passions are. Now to be sure, the list in verse 3 is not exhaustive. He didn't just list out every single sin there ever was, but it's a very dark list, right? The first five items on the list involve unrestrained desires for sex, food, and drink. And what they all have in common is a lack of self-control. When we come to lists like this in the Bible, every believer should do two things. First, look at the actual list and ask, am I engaging in these specific things on this list? Like, actually, am I engaging in them? It's not subjective. It's as plain as the words on the page. And if you think this is just stuff of ancient paganism, think again. This list is alive and active here in greater Boston. We might dress it up. We might use sophisticated apps. But this lifestyle is alive and well. We have to ask, am I engaging in any of these on this list? Second, we come to lists like this, we have to think about the list and ask, what do they have in common? And I mentioned earlier, it's a list of unrestrained desires. It's a list that lacks self-control. 
So maybe you're not engaging in those specific things, but then you can take it a little bit further down into the heart and say, am I living my life with a lack of self-control? Or maybe better way to say it, where in my life do I lack self-control? In that case, none of us are exempt from this list. See how the Bible does that? Before we move on, we have to ask, am I engaging in these acts of sin? If you are participating in these acts of sin, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to turn away. Now you might think, listen, Clint, that list was real dark. And I have, and I am engaging in those sins. I can't come to Jesus. I can't come and be honest with him about these sins. But friends, listen to this from Pastor Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Shameless Plug. Here it goes. Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him. Listen, irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. Now listen, if we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce, it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. Now he's not being ridiculous there. That's from Revelation. It says as Jesus comes in power, he comes as one riding on a horse, tatted up on his leg, sword coming out of his mouth. Back to Ortland. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness be for us. And friends, we will all be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. You hear what he's saying? We're going to face Jesus one way or the other. Do you want to face the lion-like judgment of that double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? Or do you want to be received and enveloped in the lamb-like tenderness? No matter your sin, no matter how much shame or guilt you feel, come to Jesus and he will deal gently with you. Now, there's the last term on that list, lawless idolatry. It refers to prolific polytheism and idol worship of their day. You see, at this time, everyone worshipped multiple gods. In fact, they didn't even have a term for the term idolatry. It was just what their religion was. See, the problem in the, the ancient world had with Christians is that they wanted to worship Jesus exclusively. See, if they had just said, listen, we want to add another God, they'd have been like, great. There's plenty of room for more gods. We love more gods. We, we want to make sure we're not offending any of the gods. But the claim of Christianity was, no, no, no. There's only one God. His name is Jesus, and he is Lord. While Jesus was welcomed to the Pantheon party as another God, he was not welcomed as the exclusive one and only God. And so everything was acceptable except Christians' exclusive claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is one God, one Lord, and one way to salvation. So listen to how Peter goes on. He says, with respect to this, 
They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, which means they speak evil against you. But they, those who are speaking evil, will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So here's what's happening. Peter's readers are facing this difficult choice of either taking the path of least resistance and being accepted or swimming against the cultural current in Godward obedience and being unfairly criticized. So they can either go with the cultural tide, adopt the same values, norms, and practices, and thereby be accepted, or they can swim against that tide and be obedient to God and suffer unfair criticism, unjust suffering from unbelieving friends, family, and neighbors. And my brothers and sisters, some things never change. Doesn't that just describe the day we're living in as well? We, sit, we face the same difficult reality today. See, it used to be that being tolerant meant that while you might disagree with somebody, you tolerated them because everyone should be free to express their beliefs. People believed that truth was absolute and through honest and thoughtful engagement, you could find it. But the new tolerance movement is ironically not so tolerant. Truth has been demoted to mere opinion and subjectivity. And tolerance doesn't mean tolerating people with different beliefs. It means never saying anything that differs or questions another person's beliefs. Tim Keller, living and ministering in Manhattan, is helpful here. He says, tolerance now isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. That's what real tolerance is. So whether our, uh, it's our moral lifestyle or our theological beliefs that ground them, Peter is calling Christians to live in a distinctive way that swims against the cultural uh, tide. So here's our second resolution. Resolved. To suffer unjust criticism rather than give in to peer pressure. Peter basically says, Christians, are you willing to suffer unjust criticism, unfair um, harshness, rather than giving in the peer pressure to sin? He, he goes on to say, ultimately, everyone will give an account to God for the choices we made. Because God is the judge of the living and the dead, and it's ultimately his word that matters. And what he's saying is, if you live according to God's will... You might be judged by the court of public opinion. You may have already experienced some of that in your life where you made decisions to do or not do something that went against your peer group. And people thought it was weird and thought it was strange and maybe said some things and maligned you. That's being judged by the court of public opinion. And what Peter is saying, it's better to be judged by that court than by the court of God. He's the ultimate judge, and it's his word that ultimately matters. That's what Peter is trying to say about the gospel being preached to those who are dead. He's not saying that once you die, you get a second chance to believe the gospel. What he's saying is that those who were alive before, who heard the gospel, the gospel was not preached in vain. They might have been judged by the court of public opinion, but now that they've died, they've been vindicated by God's judgment. Friends, in the end, God will settle the score. 
Though in this life we might be judged by the fair weather court of public opinion, in the end, those who live by God's standard will experience vindication and a life of ever-increasing joy. Being obedient to God, suffering the consequences of criticism that might come your way, it's the path of most resistance. You're not just going to stumble your way there, but it is the path that leads to life. See, when we plunge ourselves into the same uh, sinful way of living, do you know what kind of confusing message it sends to the world? When we live just like our unbelieving neighbors, it confuses them because they go, well, I thought you guys had different beliefs. I thought you guys lived differently. See, the message of Christianity is that we've found a better person to live for. We found a more satisfying joy. We found a truth and a goodness and beauty that give order, meaning, and purpose to life. And we've been transformed and changed from the inside out. That's the message of Christianity. And so think about your unbelieving neighbor or friend. When they look at your life, they wonder, well, how is it that my Christian friend is so much like me if the transforming, powerful, the transforming power of Jesus is as radical as they say. Do you see the disconnect there? Now, that doesn't mean that you go out and live some kind of extra strange life. No, no. The Christian life is strange enough. What Peter is saying is simply live as a Christian. Do your best. You're going to have ups and downs. Be humble about it. But live as a Christian. And that alone will be enough for the watching world to think it's strange. But listen... It will give a powerful testimony and a powerful witness of the power of the gospel. Or another way to say it is this. Live your life in such a way that it gives someone a vision of what their life could be like if they were to become a Christian. They see your life and they go, man, look how much it's changed them. Maybe it could change me as well. In 2021, will you live with the second resolve to suffer unjust criticism rather than give in to peer pressure? Now quickly, let's look at the last few verses to see our third and final resolution. Peter finishes out the chapter, uh, chapter four like this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If verse 3 was a list of things to avoid and put to death. Verse 7 through 11 are things to pursue and cultivate. I love that. I love that there's much more to pursue and cultivate than things to avoid. We should be too busy with pursuing the things of, of, of cultivating a life of righteousness to be dabbling in things that lead us to death. And he begins with this section with a reminder that we all need to hear. The end of all things is near. So what is the end of all things? That's the biblical language that the final stage of God's redemption plan is coming. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
at the return of Christ where God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ inaugurated the kingdom. It began it, but the consummation, the culmination, the completion of God's kingdom comes when Christ comes again. And when Peter says that it's at hand, the focus is not on the soonness of it, but rather that there are no more steps in God's redemptive plan between now and the final step. What that means is Christ could come at any moment. There's nothing left for God to do in his big redemption plan. The next stage is the return of Christ. And none of us know the time or the hour. That's why Peter says the end of all things is at hand. It could happen at any moment. And that brings us to our third resolution, to live with the end in mind, shaped by the mission and values of Christ. To live with the end in mind, shaped by the mission and values of Christ. See, if we live with the here and now in mind, what's going to happen? You're going to pursue temporal, fleeting pleasures. You're going to pursue the accolades that affirm you here and now. However, if you live with the end in mind, with the goal in mind, you'll live for the mission and values of Christ. And Peter goes on to give us four practical things that this mindset will pursue. Number one, be self-controlled and clear-minded so you can pray. In a world where feelings and impulse rule the day, Christians are to be marked by self-control and a clear mind. And what's more, we are to pray. This is a beautiful cycle. What Peter is saying is, look, when we're self-controlled and clear-minded, what do we do? We recognize the need for prayer. When we're thinking at our best, thinking Christians go, we need to pray, right? And at the same time, when we're praying, what happens? We lead self-controlled and clear-minded lives. First practical thing you can do this year, be self-controlled, clear-minded, so you can pray. Number two. Love one another with gracious Christ-like love. Peter says we're to love one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is riffing off of Proverbs 10 verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. What's the proverb and Peter saying? Distinctly Christian love pours water on conflict, not gasoline. Listen, there is so much room for conflict and disunity Christians need to pour love on it like water so that the conflict dissipates instead of lighting a match and throwing gasoline on it. Love covers. Have you ever covered a fire? What happens? It smothers it. It puts it out, right? That's what love does. It covers a multitude of conflict. Conflict is quenched when someone decides to stop the downward spiral. I have five children the conflict spiral is just unending. It's always happening. And I'm always telling them, someone has to be the one to decide to stop the cycle, to stop the spiral, to be the one to counter, not with more hatred, more conflict, but to counter with love. Counter with love. When we overlook an offense... When we believe the best about someone's words instead of the worst. When we extend preemptive 
forgiveness. You know what that means? That means as you go into a tense conversation, you've already decided, not based on what they say or how they say it, but you've decided, I am leaving this conversation extending forgiveness. I don't care what they say about me. I don't care what they do. I am going to forgive. How would your conflict resolution conversations change if you went in with that kind of mindset? No matter what happens, doesn't matter what they do or say, I am extending forgiveness. I am going to believe the very best about their words. You've been in a conversation where it feels like everything you say, they're taking it in the worst possible way. Right? It's frustrating. It's demeaning. Christians ought not to live like that. We should believe the very best about what someone is saying and extend preemptive forgiveness. That's how we love one another with a gracious Christ-like love. Number three, practice hospitality with gratitude. What's hospitality? It's relational generosity. It means welcoming people in. It means we see all that we have, your time, your homes, your resources, your very lives as gifts to be received from God and therefore with a graciousness to give them to other people. Peter tells us to practice hospitality with gratitude. And number four, serve one another with the gifts you've received. Every gift you have was given to you by a generous giver, the Lord. And he's given every one of his children gifts to be used to serve one another. That means taking inventory knowing ways God has blessed you and gifted you, and then looking for opportunities to use those gifts. And Peter gives us a word of encouragement. He says, not only does God supply the gift, but he also supplies the strength to use that gift. Now, I'm out of time, and we don't have time to go into all the particularizations of these four practical pursuits, but that's your homework. That's where you take this sermon, that's where you take this text later in the week and you go, okay, so how do I live these things out? How do I arm myself with the mindset of Christ? How do I value living out the, this life of sanctification rather than being affected by peer pressure? How do I live a relationally generous life? What does that look like practically in my life? That's taking the sermon beyond Sunday where you consider and reflect on what those mean on your life. So as you step into a new year, will you be resolved to live with the end in mind, shaped by the mission and values of Christ? Friends, 2021 is here. And on the heels of a tumultuous 2020, we all have mix of questions of what tomorrow holds. All of us are hoping that this year will be better than the last I am not going to make empty promises to you. I do not know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what this year has for us all. But I do know this. God's word is true. And it gives us direction for how to live our lives in 2021, no matter the circumstances. Do you notice that nothing that I just said in, this, in the last 45 minutes had to do with circumstances? It's all about living with this resolve of Christ. So let's be the people of God. 
Let's be armed with the mindset of Christ to pursue the will of God. Let's be willing to suffer unjust criticism rather than to give in to peer pressure. And let's live with the end in mind, shaped by the mission and value of Christ. Let's pray.